0: We are here with veteran GOP uh, strategist Matt Mikowiak. Thank you for joining the Discourse Podcast, Matt. Hey, it's my pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. To begin, Democratic senators like North Dakota's Heidi Heitkamp are up for re-election in states um, Donald Trump won in 2016. um, And therefore, they usually voted in favor of the president's nominees. Uh, Should we expect that trend to continue with the upcoming nominations of Mike Pompeo for Secretary of State, Gina Haspel for CIA Director, and Ronnie Jackson for VA Secretary? Yeah, it's a
1: good question. Um, You know, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the vote of an incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator in a red state. On something like Secretary of State or CIA director would, would ultimately be a major issue uh, in a US Senate race. I think the bigger challenge for people like High Camp and Manchin is they really haven't supported the Trump agenda uh, at all anywhere in any meaningful way throughout the last 15 or 16 months. Um, now that that may be defensible uh, in some ways on some issues but it's not defensible on every issue and, and obviously the greatest Risk that I think they, that they have is on the tax, the tax law, which uh, continues to to grow in popularity, which I imagine uh, would be popular in red states, like West, 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 West Virginia, like Montana, like North Dakota. So they I mean, just you know generally those those Democrats you know sort of style themselves as moderate. Democrats, but they really haven't separated themselves from the National Democratic Party brand. It's possible that, you know, the next six months, uh, some of these vulnerable Democratic senators may look for easy and cheap ways to distance themselves from National Democrats. Uh, I just don't know whether they'll be able to do it in a meaningful way, you know, to to meaningfully uh, demonstrate they have independence from the National Democratic Party brand. Now, to your point, uh, for some of these nominees to get through with John McCain not being there to vote, um, you've got to have, you know, 51 votes, basically 50 Republican U.S. Senators and, uh, you know, the vice president breaking the tie. So you have in the, in the Haskell and Pompeo situation, you have uh, Rand Paul already now that he's going to oppose. So that means you're going to have to get a, at least one Democratic vote. I, I think ultimately uh, Pompeo will get through fairly easily. Haskell, is, it's going to be a much more uh, I think dependent on uh, how she does in her confirmation hearing and whether she's able to, to answer uh, the questions that the, the number of senators have about black science
0: and torture and things like that mm-hmm. and what about uh, Ronnie Jackson um, for Veterans Affairs secretary
1: so there are two issues I think that come into play with the nominee to take over the VA pick number one. And this is something that a number of people have raised. Jackson doesn't have sort of, you know, uh, large-scale management experience. He's clearly a very credible doctor. He's served in combat, and combat medic. Uh, he's impressive personally. He served two presidents of the United States as their position. Uh, the Obama team liked and respected him greatly. Uh, as, the, as does President Trump clearly. So he has a relationship, but it's not clear yet that he can demonstrate he has the, the management capability, and I think that's going to be one of the areas that's going to get a lot of attention. I think the second area is going to be how far is Jackson going to say that he wants to go uh, on on so-called privatizing the VA. Uh, that's not popular with veteran service organizations and it's definitely not popular with Democrats. And again, the math is the math. I mean, you still have to find a way to get – Know, 50 votes plus to vice president to get a, a, a nominee confirmed so I, I imagine at this point Jackson is doing making the rounds meeting with senators on the relevant committee uh, personally and privately to talk to them to talk about his qualifications and talk about his vision for the future of the department um, it'll be interesting to see if, if that ends up being a big fight or not I mean I could wager all three of those nominees are more likely to be confirmed than any other scenario ultimately, but if, if there's a problem, if there's a controversy, if their confirmation hearing goes poorly, uh, if there's some other, you know, major development, I mean, those are the, listen, the, the margin is, is narrow enough that you know, particularly for Haskell and for Jackson there's really just not much room, uh, to, to waiver. Uh, if they were to lose, you know, three or four Republicans, their nominations would really be in,
0: in Barry Straits. Mm-hmm. And, um, Missouri Governor Eric Gridens uh, has been indicted on fraud-related charges. Does this help uh, incumbent Senator Claire McCaskill, uh, similar to the break she got in twenty twelve?
1: So the Greitens situation is is pretty serious, um, and it's it's you know really kind of a bizarre story. Um, obviously there's a criminal element to this um, that is you know, working its way through the system uh, and then of course there's a political element to this that's, that's also working its way through the system my understanding is that this week perhaps in the next 24 hours an independent report is going to be produced that will, that's will that been commissioned that's going to detail exactly what happened uh, and that may that may take this story to a level but you're right the US Senate race is really important in Missouri it's one of the five states that Trump won with well over fifty five percent that has a Democratic incumbent US Senator, in this case Claire McCaskill. I believe for some time McCaskill is vulnerable. Generally if you know, if you have a Democratic U.S. Senator on reelection in a state where a Republican governor has major problems, you would you would say yes, it, it clearly would help the Democratic candidate to have the Republican governor have problems. Now, two things to point out. One, uh, the Republican governor was just elected, so he's not up for reelection this cycle. He was just elected last November. So that's not it's not really an issue of of him being a drag on the ticket. Uh, the second issue, which I think kind of uh, is important to remember, is that the Republican U.S. Senate nominee, uh, Josh Hawley, is the sitting attorney general, and so he has actually been in, you know, involved uh, in some of the law enforcement aspects of looking into the Greighton situation. So he has, in some ways, uh, meaningful distance and meaningful independence from from the governor in terms of how he's handled this and potentially how he will handle it. So. Uh, it's obviously, uh, you know, a, a very um, uncomfortable situation, um, and no one really knows where, where it will go. I mean, it, it's not clear to me that Greitens can continue in office. you uh, will have to see what kind of political support he has uh, in Preston City at the state capitol. Legislators, Republican legislators start calling on him to resign, you know, this week or next week. You could even see impeachment proceedings begin. On the Republican side in the House in the next uh, you know month or two as well. So look, it's it's it certainly is a, a drama that's unfolding. We don't really know where it's going. Brighton's is clearly going to fight this as far as he possibly can, as strongly as he possibly can. It's a headache for Republicans in that state, but you know I still think Holly has a reasonably good chance of being successful, even though Castille is the incumbent uh, and and has maybe the wind in her back nationally. And is raising a lot of money. Holly still has a chance here, and if he can credibly demonstrate that he has, uh, you know, uh, independently served as attorney general on this matter, I think he can. He can. He can. You know, kind of swim upstream.
0: And moving on to another state, which Trump won in 2016, Florida Governor Rick Scott announced yesterday that he'll challenge incumbent Senator Democrat Bill Nelson this November. What are your thoughts? Can he? win and help the GOP increase its Senate majority?
1: Absolutely, I think Rick Scott can win in Florida and, you know, keep in mind the math here as it relates to control of the United States Senate. Uh, you have a 51-49 Republican majority currently because Republicans lost uh, incredibly the in Alabama. Um, obviously, Democrats would need to win a net of two seats, which in any in any you know midterm in any real election cycle, that would be a task that they could could, could likely feel good about achieving. Uh, What's unique about this cycle is you have ten Democrats uh, who are up for election uh, that are in states that Trump won. Five of them, as I said, are in states that Trump won with over fifty-five percent. The map itself is very beneficial to very advantageous to Republicans. Um, and so, basically, what what Democrats need to do to take control of the Senate pack is, is defend all ten of those seats, and then pick up two seats. And and the, the most likely path for that would be Nevada and Arizona, where you have Republican incumbents running in tough states, uh, where there are credible Democratic candidates running. So they basically have to go twelve for twelve. Any any state that Republicans can flip, whether that be, as we said, North Dakota, West Virginia, Montana, Missouri. Um, in, in Indiana, those are the five maybe top states Or if you were to add a state like Florida into that mix It makes the path even tougher for Democrats It then would have to reach into another state like Tennessee or Texas To have any chance to take the majority back in the Senate So Rick Scott's been a bit successful governor Probably hasn't been quite as popular as Jeb Bush uh, His predecessor, but he's he's clearly been a very successful governor Their economy's strong, he's cut taxes, he's been a reformer he clearly has handled hurricanes and the most recent Parkland shooting, uh, demonstrating leadership uh, for that state. And perhaps most crucially, uh, he brings the ability to to, um, to offer significant, you know, uh, a, a resources of his own in a state that is, you know, very expensive that has a lot of media markets. Uh, you know, so it's an opportunity for for a challenger to outspend an incumbent, which is pretty rare. And it's part of how you got elected governor in the first place, putting enormous resources into his governor's race. So I expect he'll spend 30 or 40 or $50 million, literally that much money, uh, to take on uh, incumbent Senator Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson has never had a real race for the United States Senate in his entire career. Well, for one reason or another, he's been able to avoid facing a serious challenger. Um, so no one really knows if he's a strong incumbent or not because he's never really been tested. He's a bit of a moderate Democrat in some ways, uh, there's certainly been some frustration within among them the Democratic base in Florida. You do have an active governor's race um, this this cycle as well, which will of course affect the environment in Florida. But no, this is a coup for National Republicans in terms of recruitment. Rick Scott is an executive; he's a former healthcare executive. He's been a very successful governor, and he's going to be able to put significant resources in. So, I would move this this race up the uh, up the list uh, reasonably high. Florida is a winnable state. Uh, generally, and uh, given that you have a 1st tier candidate here that's challenging sort of an untested incumbent, I think it's a great opportunity for Republicans to pick up a very valuable United States Senate seat this November.
0: And quickly following up, uh, speaking of seats, um, do we should we expect the GOP to hold its majority in the House, but maybe have that number narrowed while picking up seats in the Senate, or...
1: Else. Yeah, I think, look, we're sitting here six, seven months away from the midterms. Obviously, a lot can happen. Uh, we don't know how some of this trade stuff is going to work out. We don't know how the North Korean situation is going to get resolved. We can't say with certainty what the economy will be. We don't know where the Russia inquiry is going. All of those things are huge variables that will affect the midterms. As we sit here today, uh, the situation is, is not encouraging for Republicans. We clearly have a headwind. We don't know exactly how strong it will be, but you, when you combine the national environment, Trump's uh, historically low popularity ratings, which which have been improving in the last couple of months, but they still remain in the high 30s and low 40s. Um, when you combine all those factors, plus the very large number of retirements that we've seen among House Republicans, which has expanded the map, Democrats have a good chance to take the House back. And, um, you know, you look at... Where those seats are, they're in suburban areas. Uh, they're in states like California. They're in states in the Midwest. Uh, these are, you know, with the exception of California, these are areas that Trump did well. And what we don't know at this point is whether the Trump coalition can be reconstituted without Trump on the ballot. You know, kind of the through the looking glass. This was one of the big questions about the midterms when, Obama's, when Obama was in office. Obama was able to, re, you know, constitute his own coalition and win nationally when he was on the on the ballot. But but the Democrats faced significant. Uh, electoral disasters in 2010, 2014. So so the the, the the you know the history on this is very much going working against Republicans as well. The first midterm after a new president is elected always goes against the party that's in power. The question is to what extent we will go against them. The question I think for Republicans is going to be uh you know can their candidates run good races? Can they raise enough resources? Uh can they um you know sell the tax cut nationally uh, which I, I think you know they think they need to be much more focused and more disciplined in doing that uh, going forward. Um, and then the question for Democrats is how far left are they going to go, and how are their primaries going to work out? Are they going to have electable nominees in a lot of these key races? or are they going to have sort of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren style left left candidates running? Um, so there's a lot of factors there. I would say right now it's you know maybe fifty, fifty or sixty, forty against that Republicans hold the House. It's still a long way away. I do think Republicans are going to lose seats. The question is, can they keep it to, let's say, 10 or 12 seats and have their, their majority narrow? Or do they lose the majority, which allows Democrats It gives them subpoena power so they can really go after the Trump administration? It opens up the possibility of the House impeaching Trump, which would then likely fail in the Senate on a, on a two-thirds vote uh, requirement. Uh, but it would be a real problem, and Trump's legislative agenda would obviously come to a screeching halt for the final two years in his first four-year term.
0: And my second to last question is Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, will be testifying on Capitol Hill today over his company allowing the data of millions of users uh, to be used without their consent. What impact does the Cambridge Analytica case have on future elections? Yeah, it's it's another good question.
1: Look, we're we are in uh, a whole new era here uh, as it relates to big data and these digital these digital platforms and how they can be used to identify voters and target them. Um, we're at the very beginning, I think, of Congress looking at this and considering you know new regulation of these digital platforms. Um, we don't know at this point whether the law was violated as it relates to Cambridge Analytica and as it relates to Facebook. Uh, obviously, as we sit here taping this, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying to Congress, and that's obviously a very high stakes, uh national event. It's going to get enormous attention. I, mean, I think so far, Facebook has not handled this very well. Uh, they were really silent for several days as a lot of this news came out, uh, and basically all they've done is sort of offer you know, wishy-washy apologies and, and sort of modest changes to how their platform works. Uh, so I think they have a bit of a branding or PR problem. I, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of my friends uh, announce that they are going to be leaving the Facebook platform because they don't believe they can trust the company. Now, Facebook remains a, you know, behemoth. Um, They're they very profitable. They're very successful. Uh, they, uh, you know their, their platform is very, very uh, appealing uh, to advertisers. And uh, it remains just it remains a very successful platform really unlike anything we've seen in the modern era. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's really completely at risk, but if if it you know if regulators step in through through Congress and pass major new laws that change uh, how Facebook can operate, that could obviously affect their bottom line and their business model. So Facebook I think is facing a pretty unpleasant few months here um, the rest of this year with requests for documents, hearings, Obviously, Zuckerberg is going to be under oath as he gives congressional testimony. Uh, he, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't want to risk, uh, you know, being guilty in contempt of Congress uh, if he were to lie to Congress, which I, I don't believe he would, but we'll have to see what, what happens. So we are entering, uh, you know, a new phase here. And there were questions, there were questions about Twitter uh, and that platform, uh, obviously, as it relates to the election and how the platform was used or misused. Uh, and then a subplot to all of this, too, is whether these platforms are... Uh, sort of silencing conservatives and are are operating in a way that is uh, ideologically biased. Uh, And I think that's another story to watch. So the bigger these platforms get, you know, the more significant the issues are that they're having to deal with. Uh, And I think we are at the beginning of this story, not the middle and certainly not the end.
0: But what about in terms of uh, how campaigns will use social media data to target voters? Yeah, I don't think that trend
1: is is going to change uh, all that significantly. Uh, the question is whether you know this data, obviously, the data that Cambridge uh, got from Facebook, I think will not be available, but there will be other data uh, that that will be available. You know only as recently as two or three cycles election cycles go, uh, you know basically you were relying on data that you produced yourself in terms of door locking and phone banking. Or consumer data that's out there, magazine subscriptions, things like that, what kind of car you own. And, and they were basically trying to take that information to model it to predict uh, which types of voters might be more likely to support the candidate that, that the campaign is, is working for. Obviously, in the digital space, uh, we're in a different phase now where you are targeting voters digitally. And uh, that, that offers lots of new ways to. Uh, to ascertain who they are and what they they like and who their friends are. And there are big questions about whether these platforms are making too much information available, whether people know that their information is being made available, uh, and of course what the security implications and privacy implications are for all of those things. So, uh, you know, look, I still expect Facebook uh, and to a lesser extent Twitter to be major platforms that campaigns use um, going forward. Uh, you know, this cycle and 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 in the 2020 cycle, I continue to expect digital ad spending to increase significantly, cycle over cycle, uh, and, and you continue to see that more more you know larger share of overall advertising dollars uh, in campaigns has been used has been spent and allocated towards uh, digital ads compared to uh, more traditional methods like mail and television and radio, uh, because digital methods continue to be more efficient. And so uh, I think that trend will continue, but of course it's going to depend, you know, are there major changes in terms of how these platforms operate, uh, and if, you know, if, if in a worst case scenario for Facebook, if it were to begin losing um, you know, users, uh, broadly speaking, I mean, that would obviously affect their ability uh, to be used as a platform to satisfy campaigns. I, I think it'll probably be marginal the loss in users that may happen. But it's going to depend what else comes out. If if Facebook continues to sustain bad news and sort of negative buzz about how they've filled the situation, look, they're having a bit of a confidence crisis right now in terms of users. I think people right now are looking at Facebook and they really don't know how much of their information is being uh, given out. And, And until they answer those questions with credibility and change their practices, There's going to be a huge cloud, I think, hanging over Facebook, and that is why Congress is looking at uh, regulating those platforms far more aggressively than they had in the past.
0: And my final question is, here at the National Discourse, we're about publishing articles from both sides of the political and ideological spectrum to foster mature dialogue nationwide. What's your reaction to the current state of political discourse?
1: Well, um, it's pretty ugly out there. I think in some ways social media has made it worse because it's sort of marginalized uh, more thoughtful analysis and pushed all of us to offer sort of pithy one-liners you know, in in 140 characters at a time. And um, it, it certainly looks now as though you know people are, are attacking first and asking questions later um, you know everyone is is out there sort of questioning the motives of, of everyone uh, you see this you know you saw this most, most clearly i uh, recently after the parkland shooting uh, with some of the language that was being used certainly on both sides but from my standpoint more so on the gun control side you know questioning you know whether second amendment supporters you know, want to see more kids murdered in, in mass shootings, you know, an outrageous uh, suggestion. So the national discourse, I think, is headed in the wrong direction. Um, I, don't, I don't know that there's an easy solution. I'm certainly open to ideas that are out there. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to um, take our time to be thoughtful, to try to look at the world through another person's eyes from time to time, uh, to not be overconfident. Uh, no one is correct 100% of the time. Um, so admit admit mistakes, admit failings um, and to again try to illuminate uh, issues uh, and provide information and provide an honest perspective rather than attack people uh, mercilessly and right now I think attacking uh, people really is, is kind of what gets rewarded um, and until that incentive structure you know, changes in some fundamental way I think we're going to continue to see the national discourse head in the wrong direction and that's you know, not good for the country. Obviously there are, you know, the next generation is looking at all of this and seeing how, uh, how adults are responding. Um, and, and I think it's really providing a very poor example. And so, you know, politics is downstream from culture. And in some ways I think the culture is contributing to all of this as well. Um, so that's a long answer to a short question. Again, I mean, I as someone who, you know, uh, has my own podcast uh, called Map On Politics, uh, with the Russian Times is somebody who writes for her, her three different publications, is on television and radio, and and does, you know, a pretty good no- amount of analysis. I obviously fall victim from time to time to my own uh, instincts uh, on these issues. But, um, but again, all you can do is do the best you can and try to be the example that you want to set for other people. Um, and, and I also think, you know, one of the other things about these social media platforms is you can – you can call out uh, bad behavior, and you know, not everybody wants to do that, but I, I certainly try to do that with my Twitter account. If I see people out there that are being mean-spirited or hypocritical or putting false information out there. Uh, I really don't have any problem you know, getting into that in, in, in those kinds of situations. And so I think, you know, the calling out bad behavior, but then, of course, rewarding good behavior. If you see people out there that admit that they made a mistake, uh, or are you know trying to be thoughtful about an issue where there obviously is a lot of you know passionate viewpoints. I mean, these kind of things I think are are helpful. Um, and so again, we can all provide that example, um, and it's 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 in all of us to do that.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself, uh, veteran GOP strategist Matt McCoyak, Thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care.